Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, I hope that I'm not overloading you with these uh, Terrence McKenna podcasts, but there are several reasons for it. Uh, Well, one of which is that I've been given encouragement to keep them coming by Peter L., Mark B., and Gottfried H., uh, all of whom made donations to the salon recently and uh, who I thank very much. The other reason is that, uh, well, it's been so hot here lately, getting into the mid-90s in our unair-conditioned little house, that I've uh, been so lethargic that even reading doesn't seem to interest me very much. The only thing that gets me up and going in this heat is to listen to something from Terrence McKenna that I haven't heard before. And so, uh, right now, I'm going to play the next part of the June 1989 workshop that I began a few days ago. And uh, by the way, for those who have been pinging me about this, I'll be making a few personal comments about where I stand on the time wave, uh, at least once we've finished today's talk. Which, uh, I guess I should mention, uh, doesn't go into the time wave at all. (laughs) Now that I think about it, I I guess this is kind of a strange podcast to uh, add my thoughts to about this, but uh, what the heck, huh? Anyway, uh, getting on with today's program, Terrence begins by talking about one of the books that we previously learned uh, were on his recommended reading list. And uh, then he goes on to talk about a few other things as well, uh, like comparing a DMT trip to an automobile accident. (laughs) Also, uh, for the first time that I remember hearing it, he gives a very interesting opinion about where you go when you smoke DMT. And I'm not talking about where to go in this physical universe, but about where the place is and what the place is that you seem to be in while you're in the thrall of that particular experience. (laughs) I have a smile on my face right now just thinking about it. So uh, let's get on with the show and uh, see if you don't smile at this as well. I was going to just mention three books I might mention more as time goes on, but these three are uh, central to understanding what I'm going to be saying this month, and they're very different books. Some of you, many of you may have read this one, which is uh, The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. And this is the, the book that talks about the partnership versus dominator model of society and gets the gender tension inherent in the matriarchy-patriarchy way of framing that problem. It gets that out of the way because it just says dominator and partnership and, and she believes and offers evidence that there never was a matriarchy, that that whole notion of a pendulum moving between patriarchy and matriarchy is not uh, valid. And she and I are in agreement in that we both see something very important happening to human beings around the emergence of pastoralism, around the time when the domestication of cattle became a major concern of human beings. Uh... This great goddess 
religion that was worldwide in prehistory is inevitably uh, a cattle religion. And uh, she talks a lot about this, and she talks uh, a lot about uh, early cultural accomplishments. Uh, she's trained as an archaeologist. Early cultural accomplishments such as uh, Çatal Hüyük, a civilization in southern Turkey that is important for my argument too, because it was very, very early and achieved a sudden and extreme flowering of culture like nothing that would, uh, nothing would rival it for several thousand years. Um, Mary Setgast calls it uh, a premature burst of complexity and brilliance. And, uh, Rian Eisler uses, um, dynamic theory borrowed from modern mathematics borrowed from uh, uh, Ralph Abraham who I'm sure many of you know to make cultural models and so there's been a lot of excitement about this book among feminists but what has been sort of overlooked is that this is the first time there was ever a mathematical uh, application of dynamics to human history so this is a a good book. She is not psychedelic. She and I did a weekend together at Ojai, which, where she was wonderfully <laughs> generous and tolerant of my dancing around in the middle of her parade ground, because I'm saying, you know, that the dynamic that drove this cultural transition had to do with psychedelics, and that this goddess cattle religion had to be also a mushroom religion. And later today, even, maybe we'll talk more about that. The second book, which I think you'd enjoy, and I don't know, maybe they have, they have this at the bookstore. They should have this. It's called The Creative Explosion, An Inquiry into the Origins of Art and Religion. Now, notice that both of these books that I've recommended contain long passages about sudden outbursts of creative brilliance on the cultural level. This is very interesting to me because this is um, this stuff called novelty that we talked about a little bit yesterday. And tracking these outbursts of brilliance and complexity in cultures and in our own lives is the way we confirm for ourselves the existence of um, this topological manifold over which probabilistic or previously thought to be probabilistic events are flowing. What Pfeiffer, John Pfeiffer, is saying in this book is he, it's a study of the cave art of Spain and southern France. And what he's saying about it is that, you know, some of these things are hundreds and hundreds of feet underground, down very narrow passages, and you have to go through all these contortions to get to them. Anyway, he's saying that this was a uh, manipulated environment that these were created and placed in this way to evoke very strong emotional responses from people. And certainly, even today, with very high-powered flashlights and nylon ropes and all of this stuff, 
it's a very big deal to descend hundreds and hundreds of feet into the ground. You can imagine people who had tallow lamps. And it appears that they went into these places and made these things, uh, and then only returned very briefly uh, on a cyclical basis uh, afterwards. In other words, they didn't inhabit these places. These were ceremonial places. And what he's talking about is the High Magdalenian, which is uh, uh, 19,000 to 17,000 years ago, when for the first time there was uh, bone and antler technology. In other words, the Stone Age is ending, and there's a bone antler technology, and there is this tremendous uh, outpouring of creativity mostly vented on a depiction of these animal images of animals that were in um, a state of semi-domestication or balanced upon the probability of domestication. So what we're seeing are herds of deer and uh, uh, cattle and uh, primitive uh, sheep and this sort of thing. So both of these books point to unexplained outbursts of creativity in the human past and document them very well, but without offering a causal mechanism. Now, on a more practical, partly more practical uh, bent, um, and this ad directly addresses the psychedelic issue, if you're at all interested in psychedelics, plants. This is uh, the Bible. It occurs in several different forms. This is the botany and chemistry of hallucinogens by Richard Evans Schultes and Albert Hoffman. Schultes was the Harvard botanist who basically single-handedly created the field of ethnopharmacology. And uh, early on, Schultes understood that what uh, native peoples were saying about disease and plants was very um, touched with folklore and cultural factors. But what they said about psychoactive plants, you could rely upon. And so he, he oriented his career toward the psychoactives and through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, uh, he and his graduate students uh, basically shed light on a previously completely unexplored area of botany. And we now, through books like this, and you may have seen his more popular book, Plants of the Gods, uh, these uh, basically list and discuss the major psychoactive plants of uh the third planet from the sun. And uh, if, you, if you need information, this is where you go. And there are extensive bibliographies. This is the first edition. It's now been issued in a second edition. But this is pretty indispensable. Uh, and there are a few other books, too. But uh, this is the one to start with. Well, so that's just sort of business. Uh, People should be directed toward books that then expand the 
basis of what's being said. Does anybody want to say anything about yesterday? And go back over any of that? I thought I would talk a little bit today about... Uh, see, the way I imagine this happening is that if there's nothing else going on, then there are facets to this thing. And they may not even appear to be connected to you at first, but I will just then choose one of these facets and uh, talk about it. So a facet that was brushed on yesterday that needs to be really brought forward and understood clearly is... Um, it kind of comes under the general uh, banner of the feminine... But from several different points of view, I want to talk about how the psychedelic uh, experience reflects on and relates to the feminine. First of all, a lot of this has to do with how I think of, of the origin situation. I think everything was set then. And uh, women... I think, well, it, it happened like this, that there was specialization in these early proto-hominid and hominid populations. And it generally divided along the lines of that the women, because they almost always had babes at breast, were more collectivized and more traveled less. The men hunted and the women kept the children and all that together. And the women were gatherers. This is the important thing. That the women were gatherers. And that w what they were gathering was food. And what they were gathering was plants, primarily. So that... Uh, I'll, I'll show you something here. This is a description of a plant. You see, before the era of color lithography, botanists tried, had this need to be able to exactly describe and differentiate plants one from another. So here is just a bit of a description of a plant. The plant is uh, Mephisticodendrum amnesium, and this is what is called the taxonomic description. Tree up to 25 feet in height, leaves membranaceous, dark green, very narrowly ligulate, apically acuminate, basically long attenuate, marginally commonly subundulate or undulate, 20 to 26 millimeters long, 1.3 to 2 centimeters wide, minutely and irregularly pilose on both surfaces. Flowers up to 28, usually about 23 centimeters long, apically 10 to 13 centimeters in diameter, very strongly sweet-scented at sundown. Calyx spathosaceous, green, papriaceous or membranaceous, 2 to 5 fid with acute teeth, 3 fifths as long as corolla, very minutely, minutely pilose. Corolla divided two-thirds to four-fifths its length, usually with five lobes, but often four or six. Membranaceous. White. Spathulate or subspathulate. Rhombidiaform. Long. Acute.
cuminate and circonate. That's half of the description. Now, the point of this is the need to describe a plant puts tremendous pressure on language to accommodate itself to difference. That's what they're doing there. They're attempting to create a word picture that will make it possible to tell this thing from any other thing. Well, women who were gatherers in this early situation were under tremendous pressure to elaborate a vocabulary of visual distinctions. You know, you eat the thorny one, not the smooth one, you eat the one with the leaves that have the crinkle on the edge, but not the one with the leaves that have the furry underside, and this kind of need put on real pressure for language. Men in the hunting situation had, strangely enough, uh, the pack signaling repertoire that we came down from the trees with is pretty sufficient for a pack hunting situation. In other words, you have 40 or 50 barks and yells, and you can direct a complex hunting operation. You don't have to have this tremendous stress on adjectives, you know. Uh, and then the major stress in hunting often is stoicism and silence, you know. I mean, it's not a rappy undertaking. And in, to this day, uh, you know, it's thought to be a sexist observation, but when you go into villages of native people, I mean, they always speak of the chattering of the women. And this is true. I mean, women chatter a lot about the details of ordinary existence. This is what they are heavily linguistically programmed to be into, is the details of... Uh, ordinary existence, and especially in this matter of food. Well, um, where the, the way in which the mushroom fits into all this is that um, when the African continent began to dry up, it, well, this happened over a very long period of time, and it wasn't just a gradual phenomenon. There were glaciations and there were interglacial periods but generally speaking, over the past half a million years, Africa has experienced a, a progressive uh, aridity. And this forced our remote ancestors down onto an evolving grassland situation. Simultaneously with all these changes going on in the proto-hominids, a lot of ungulate anim mammals were evolving in this sudden rich grassland environment. Um, and in the dung of these particular mammals, the psilocybin-producing mushrooms found a suitable environment. They are that kind of mushroom which is called coprophytic, means likes dung. And uh, the, the, the mushrooms used in the Indian cults of central Mexico are not coprophytic mushrooms, with one exception. They are ephemeral, deep forest mushrooms, an indemnified um, um, community of species that seem to have evolved there. But the exception is in the genus Stropharia, where you get this these coprophytic mushrooms, Stropharia cubensis and its uh, conspecific species, and they appear wherever there are 
cattle of the Bosyndicus type, which is the Cebu, the humped white cattle. This is a very primitive form of, of uh, uh, Asian cattle, probably the nearest living relative to Bos uh, Primogensis, which was the, uh, the prototypic Ice Age uh, uh, cattle. So um, this the mushroom occurs then in this situation in the in the manure. Well, the pressure on the environment is for protein is intense, and I saw myself in Kenya tribes of baboons on the veld, and they would go over and examine cow pies and flip them over looking for grubs underneath them. So it's in the repertoire of the behavior of these, uh, of these apes to associate these things. And the mushroom presents itself as a completely startling phenomenon in the natural environment. I mean, I've seen them in pastures in the Amazon the size of small dinner plates and on stalks 11 inches high, you know. So we're talking a hefty, uh, a hefty piece of protein, the question is, can you eat this thing? And the, um, what happens, you see, when you, uh, when you eat a little bit of psilocybin, and this was shown by experiments by Fisher years ago, is that there's an increase in visual acuity. Very slight, but measurable. Well, this means that uh, this gives you an evolutionary adaptation in the hunting situation. You have better eyesight than other members of your group and than you yourself had before you admitted this item into your diet. Well, you know, this is a self-reinforcing situation on a scale of thousands and thousands of years very quickly, those not availing themselves of this quote-unquote artificial augmentation to sensory clarity will be bred out because uh, there's just no percentage in poor vision. Uh, at slightly higher doses, the psilocybin causes uh, sexual arousal. Well, again, you don't have to be an, an evolutionary biologist to understand that the number of successful copulations that you complete has a direct bearing on the success of your reproductive strategy. And these are all numbers games, you know. I mean, those who fuck more have more children is what it comes down to. So if, if a certain dietary um, item is causing sexual activity, well then we're going to see more and more of the children of the people who indulge in that dietary item. And this can be very unconscious, you see. And then the third thing is, of course, that at yet higher doses it gives way to this uh, mystical tremendum, this e entry into hyperspace. What this has to do with the feminine is that... Uh, I think the women would have been the gatherers of the mushrooms. The women were the keepers of the reproductive mysteries anyway. This cow cult that got going, it's very clear to me that from the primitive 
from the point of view of a preliterate person, the mushroom comes from the cow. I mean, you can't explain it any other way. It has no seeds. I mean, this was puzzling to people up until the 16th century. They couldn't figure out where these things ever came from. They were accustomed to the notion of plants having seeds, but these mushrooms which sprang up overnight just seemed mysterious. So I think very early in prehistory, there was a religion which was... Uh, a celebration of the feminine, a psychedelic religion, an orgiastic religion to take account of this arousal factor in psilocybin. And that it was in this environment over thousands and thousands of years that humanness emerged, an environment of boundary dissolution, of uh, uh, where erotic connection was actually the basis of community and where there was a constant exposure to this unlanguageable, unassimilable, uh, mystical tremendum and there was, the, the psilocybin was acting then as a tremendous catalyst for language because remember, I think I said this, that it, its primary role in prehistory and in the present, possibly, is as to catalyze linguistic shifts, because linguistic shifts then give culture permission to follow and erect whatever edifices it wants. Now, throughout prehistory, this vegetable goddess is uh, a horned goddess a goddess of the moon, a goddess of cattle, and a goddess of plants. And what I'm suggesting in this book I'm writing, and I should try it out on you because I won't, you know, you're the, my best shot, is the notion that, um, and I said this before, but I repeat myself, and also things make more sense sometimes when heard again, that the natural human condition is actually a condition of symbiosis with this hallucinogen, this particular hallucinogen, that the mystery of who we are and the mystery of why we are so bereft and why history and why all this malarkey is because things went on Fifteen to twenty-five thousand years ago, that we have not, that we have repressed and never faced the implications of, that we actually had a symbiotic relationship on the mental level with some kind of feminine overmind. And, you know, never mind all the questions which this raises about where is it, what is it, how does it do it, but just that the Gaian um, process is more than a process. It is a self-reflecting uh, intellect of some sort. How can we pass judgment on this? What do we know? The earth is five billion years old. Intelligence may come in many forms. Self-reflecting awareness may come in many forms. Uh, but what seems clear is that uh, 
there was a dialogue with this other, and there was balance, and there was wholeness, and there was a way of being which, well, it was paradisical. That's why we are so haunted by the loss of it. That's why all of our ontologies are the story of how something was taken from us, something was lost. And uh, it's nobody's fault, exactly. I mean, it really has to do with the processes of the planet, that this partnership paradise that arose as we came to consciousness in the cradle of Africa was dependent on the continuation of this extremely rich grassland environment, which was, in fact, a transient phenomenon. So that by eight, ten, twelve thousand years ago, visible pressure was being felt by these populations in Africa. And you see, each time there has been an interglacial period over the last hundred thousand years, uh, Human populations and, pre and in the older strata, proto-hominid populations bottled up in Africa have radiated out across the Eurasian continent. But only in the last interglacial, 20,000 years ago, were those people leaving Africa true pastoralists. They had flocks. They had skin tents. They had a religion. They had language. We know this. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Before that, they were uh, nomadic hunter and gatherers. So you, this relationship to the mushroom and the relationship to the cattle, actually the first payoff was an entirely new order of civilization. The symbiotic relationship with the cow, which made life much, much easier, either fueled by or fed into the symbiotic relationship with the mushroom, which gave more successful hunting, better sex, and religion. So there were all these uh, factors feeding into this situation. Now, when these people got out of the Middle East, I mean, got out of, of Africa and settled in the Middle East, it was a much... Uh, a much uh, dicier <coughs> situation. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern archaeology, in Palestine there is a great puzzle because uh, before 9,500, it's virtually empty. This is the interglacial. Uh, ice reached as far south as Sidon in Lebanon. And this area was all frozen up. But that... As the, as the glaciers retreated, suddenly there are people at Ein Sabah and later at Jericho and at several places. And it's always been assumed by uh, archaeologists on basically chauvinistic grounds that this must have been an outpost of old Europe, the, the Balkan Yugoslavian area that Maria Gambutis has written so much about. Because these people are so advanced, they're called Natufians, and they appear very suddenly in the archaeological record, 9,500. A thousand years later, they build Jericho, which is, that at that time, the most advanced uh, uh, city site on the planet. 
And, uh, but before they build Jericho, their habit of building was under rock escarpments. And this is the same style of Neolithic uh, building that existed in the Teselli Plateau of Algeria. So, in the absence of much archaeology to support either side, I think it's reasonable to think that these people may have come out of Africa. And in fact, there is some evidence of this, because there is what's called uh, uh, burnished Sudanese ware 4, is found in these Natufian places, and burnished Sudanese where four comes uh, from uh, deep in what is now Ethiopia. So there was at least trade, and I think based on, and the, the people who write about all this have commented on the African motifs, because uh, while we don't have much art from Jericho, these people, a thousand years after Jericho, by now it's 7,500, they build Chatal Hyuyuk in southern Anatolia. And this is truly a science fiction civilization. I mean, it's freakish. It's 7,500 BC. Uh, the pyramids lie 3,000 years in the future. So, uh, what about that? Well, we don't know, but uh, one, of the, one of the questions that will remain unanswered in this month is why? Why is there this synergy between the plants and the human beings? Is it chance? Is it just that this is how it works out and now we are self-reflecting enough to be able to unravel the threads that went into the confluence of uh, influences that created us? Or is it plotted somehow? And this is then the extraterrestrial gene theory. Is this thing somehow strewn in our way? Because you see, I, I don't buy any of the extraterrestrial intervention theories that have them landing on the White House lawn or projecting images into the minds of people who live in trailer courts or all these things they're accused of doing. The one thing I grant extraterrestrial intelligence is great subtlety and probably a long time scale to do whatever they want to do. It's possible to reach a, a point of uh, deconditioning it's a kind of reconditioning, but it's also deconditioning, where it seems obvious that the planet must be monitored. It is, after all, such an interesting planet. It seems that if anyone could monitor, they would. I mean, we've already now, through the probes we've sent into our own solar system, seen about 33 worlds. And they all fall into various classes, and not one comes anywhere near to what we are. We are what astrophysicists have given the charming acronym. We are a whore. A whore is a water-heavy, oxygen-rich world. And water-heavy, oxygen-rich is rare, 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 rare. So it may very well be that every one of these is closely monitored. Well, once you allow that notion, then 
the the presence of the psychedelic genes, the psychedelic uh, activator in the environment begins to look more like a, co a sort of biogenic engineering. It is curious that what these psychedelics do on a on a scale of a community is they release new ideas. You become the bearer of new ideas or new tools, new techniques, new ways of doing things. And that this is how culture moves forward. That culture is a phenomenon dependent on the generation of ideas, plans, notions, connections. Well, this is precisely what these compounds are doing. So, is that a coincidence? Uh, or, or is that uh, <coughs> part of the regulator? Are we, in fact, somehow managed towards some point? And then the question becomes, of course, for what? And then, you know, it, it devolves into the realm of science fiction. I had, a I had a professor once who had a fairly grim view of things, and his notion of what human history was all about was that uh, it was a uh, radioactive minerals mining project. And that when we finally had all these nuclear weapons stacked up like cordwood, somebody would come from another world and say, thank you very much. This is what we wanted, and you've done a good job. <laughs> that all of human history was simply to get people to stockpile plutonium for somebody else's very good reason. Well, I don't think it's anything quite so Jack Armstrong-ish as that. Because what I sense in the mushroom is a tremendous heart, a tremendous, you know, it's, all, it's well beyond all of that. It's, a, it's a, an emotional, intellectual, feeling-toned kind of thing. But is it a benevolent galactic monitor? Is it the beating heartbeat of Gaia? Is it this entelechy that I spoke of at the beginning of the hour that is somehow the sum total of process on the earth? Or is it possible that I have been uh, remiss in my assessment of the capacity of human beings and that this is nothing more than us? It doesn't seem to me like us. It, it doesn't look like that to me. I got into this game originally as a kind of an art historian. And art historians are, you track motifs over centuries or decades, depending on your bailiwick. And you, it, what it really is, is it's the exploration of the human unconscious viewed as the, as art. Art. You learn what people have made, can make, do make in the realm of images. Well, the thing that was most astonishing to me about these high-gain high psychedelic states is how unfamiliar it is, how totally unfamiliar it is, even if you've made a study of the productions of the human mind in the visual dimension. So that, it, to me, and again, this may be my own psychology, what is always left out of descriptions of the psychedelic state, the deep psychedelic state, is how weird it is. I mean, a hair-raising oddness that adheres to it 
that is, I call being in the presence of the other. The other wants to be as acceptable to us as possible. It doesn't want to frighten us. It doesn't want to appall us. But it's very hard for it to perceive what our parameters of expectation and bearability are. I mean, that's very, very clear. Uh, one of the things after years of smoking DMT and trying to form a metaphor for it, I finally realized that this place that I kept bursting into was um, the equivalent, it was somebody's idea of a playpen. It was somebody very weird. This was their notion of what a human being would feel most comfortable with. <laughs> and so it was, you know, rounded and enclosed, and there's a low hum, and it's white. And these uh, language elves that come hopping out of the woodwork to transform themselves... Those are the equivalent of what you hang over a baby's cradle. You know, bright colors, moving lights, that'll keep them busy. Wow. And, 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 and it was a shock to me to realize this because I realized it profoundly. It's true. That's what it is. It's some kind of environment designed for a human being who has just been transported across hyperspace and is going to be observed for two minutes and 15 seconds and then sent back. And uh, why should it be that way? Does this really have anything to do with the spiritual life or is this some skewed off other tack entirely? I don't know. There are suggestions. There are hints, but it by no means has the support of a broad river of tradition. For instance, uh, the, the 56th fragment of Heraclitus, who's a great guy. I mean, Heraclitus was one of us. He'd be comfortable with this situation, I'm sure. The 56th uh, fragment of Heraclitus says the aeon, the aeon is a child at play with colored balls. This saying is 2,600 years old. What is it talking about? Who knows? But then you break into this place and you see the aeon and it's a child and it's playing with colored balls and you say, my God, you know, it's like you're not meant to know this stuff. Uh, the, uh, the Kabiri in alchemy are the children that are generated in the alchemical process, not the homunculi, but these are the little elves of the metals that come out of the retort and can be seen dancing uh, in the fire. These, This archetype, motif, whatever it is, is hair-raising when you encounter it because it doesn't look like an archetype or a motif. It looks like a little man 11 inches high or a self-transforming jeweled basketball or an object from uh, another dimension. Very puzzling. The parameters cannot be known, or at least are not yet known. I mean, perhaps it's foolish to say the parameters cannot be known. We are like explorers. We, anybody who goes into this psychedelic dimension, we are all going to be go into the books as pioneers because it's too early for us to be anything else. There's no maps, no finished database, just 
anecdotes of the crazy, crazy stuff that goes on. That's why it's so important to uh, to try and share this stuff. Doesn't your comparison of... It sounds to me that you're, the DMT experience, and you've said other people have had very similar experiences with the language and the repels and all this, does your comparison with that and other hallucinogenics um, help you draw a conclusion as to maybe this particular one is more off the wall and, and more... No, I think it's a... I think it's a, a place that you approach by different strategies because uh, a, a high dose of psilocybin will eventually put you into a place where you have to say, my God, I can't tell it from a DMT flash. And a high dose of ayahuasca will eventually carry you exactly to the same place. The difference is that the DMT, it's, if you, the only way you can evade the DMT is mechanically. That means only if you take too small a toke will it fail. If you can take a big enough toke, it will deliver the goods. While with the psilocybin mushrooms, with the ayahuasca, you have to be a navigator. You have to know how to tack and breathe and descend, and level, and maybe a little mantric flash and dash. It's trickier, but uh, but with the psilis- with the DMT, you know, by God, you know, it has you uh, if you get enough of it. It's exi- You know, they used to say of uh, during the Mughal dynasty, they used to say of the city of Isfahan in Persia that it was half the world because of the beauty of the vaulted ceilings of its mosques. Isfahan is half the world. Well, DMT is half the world. It's just, I would be totally despairing if it didn't exist, because it holds back the premise of the mundane. The premise of the mundane is shown to be ludicrous beyond belief and not worth a moment's trouble. It's just ruled out of bounds, you know. The world is, I'm sure you've heard me say this, the world is not only stranger than we suppose, it's stranger than we can suppose. I mean, think about that. It is stranger than we can suppose. And when you sit down with a notion like that and let it sit in, you realize that any conservative habit of thought is totally skewing you uh, away from the quintessence of... uh, and it's personal. That's the other thing. The world isn't this unbelievably strange thing which is out there. The world is this stranger-than-we-can-suppose thing which begins from the core of us out. That means nothing need taken, be taken for granted. It can be taken apart. It can be put together many, many ways. I mean, I really... You know, a... a um, a short definition of Tantra. You probably all have some notion of what Tantra is. But a, a short definition of it is, it's the shortcut. That's what they say in India. They say, the premise of Tantra is that a single being can attain enlightenment in a single lifetime. That's the premise of Tantra. That in a single lifetime, you could attain enlightenment. Well, imagine if you took that seriously how much more engaged you would be with the 
problem of figuring it out. Because what if the only place you can figure it out from is a living body? And so you get 80, 90 years in a living body, and if you haven't figured it out by that time, well, then you're dead, and that's it. But during that time, you had a crack at the big one. There was nothing holding you back from figuring it out and then transcending such absurd notions as life and death and here and now. So it's like an opportunity. You get to walk out on the court, they pitch you the ball, and you have a chance to make an 80-foot set shot. And if you don't, into the bin with that one. Os <laughs> Janiger and I, who was a great old LSD researcher and runs the Albert Hoffman Library in L.A., when he and I first met, we were sort of testing each other, and he has a famous reputation for being irascible, and we just sort of were fiddling around. And then I mentioned DMT, and he just beamed and lit up and said, Now that's something, my God! And this is what everybody says when you push them. They, it's like <laughs> they admit that it is what it is, but it never occurred to them to go further, to look into it, to see what could be done with it. And of course, it's sneered at from two directions. It's called the businessman's trip, because it's so short. The old thing in the 60s was, oh, you can do it on your lunch hour. Well, what I want to know is, what business are these businessmen in? <laughs> because, uh... and then the other thing that was said of it was, it fries your brain. Well, that's a subjective statement about what it is like to have it happen to you. It doesn't fry your brain. The fact that it reverses itself in seven minutes shows that it is probably can compete with the world's five or six most innocuous drugs. Because that's a way of thinking about how your body handles a drug. My God, if it can return you to the baseline of consciousness in seven minutes, then it's just immediately uh, turning this stuff into harmless byproducts that go into the urine. It means it's safe. Well, you see, we're reaching scary conclusions here. We're reaching the conclusion that the strongest of all hallucinogens is the safest of all hallucinogens. That would carry with it a certain implication about doing these things. And yet, what is on the line when you do DMT is not your body, but your uh, maps, your structure your belief system. I, I, I don't, I've never seen it hit anybody quite as hard as it hit me, but I was transformed in a moment from a Marxist, skeptic, scientist. <laughs> I just, it, it was then, and I will say it still is now, it is pure, 100% magic. It's magic. It's not a drug. It's an event. It's not something that you do, it's something which happens to you. And people come out of it saying, what happened? What happened? Saying, you did it. Say, that's what happened? I did it? You mean I just smoked this? That, that's it? Say, yes, calm down, the trip is over. You say, trip? You must be crazy to call it a trip. It's not a trip. It's a, it's a, it's an event. It, it's like being struck by lightning. Have you ever had one of these things? It's a lot like an automobile accident. 
an automobile accident is a very interesting thing because you're going along and everything is ordinary and then reality just begins to unpeel. It just begins, and, and you have this very, oh my God, I can't believe it. And it continues to go on, you know. And you say, wow, it's really happening. <clears throat> it's exactly like that. You know, I mean, it just, it's a, a collision with another modality. On, I have, uh, on DMT, made sounds, the intensity and purity of which are immediately convince you that no human being could do this. I mean, it's just not the way humans do it. It has this synthesizer steady, I mean, I'll bet the wave is absolutely flat down as far as you care to look into it. It's as though we don't know what we are. It's as though this is the control panel in the human animal. And you discover, you know, the monkey form, the third planet from the sun, all that was a mere fiction. And the reality is this other thing. And then why is it, why does it have the character that it does? For instance, uh, both ayahuasca and mushrooms approach this place from different directions. But the the DMT and the psilocybin have this unexpected science fiction aspect to them. This is what the art historians left out. This is what you don't get in Hildegard von Bingen. And you don't get the machines, the, the deep, iridescent, highly polished surfaces that are clearly made somewhere, manufactured. You don't get this cosmic viewpoint where the history of the solar system and the local history of the galaxy is being called upon to validate what is being said. In short, why is it so cosmic? It's different from ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is a heart-opening, earth-centered, earth-tones, uh, pastel, flowing water, organic form, fish in the river, mothering, canoe, animal-type thing. It's that even in Hawaii or British Columbia. It isn't the Amazon, unless the morphogenetic field is amplified without subject to the inverse square law. Well, this is really mysterious stuff that human cultural forms should be scripted into plants. What exactly is going on here? Uh, one of the things you can do with psilocybin and, and uh, ayahuasca that's very puzzling and should be studied is you can, um, when you get equilibrium in the state, uh, project a motif, let's say uh, Art Deco. Suddenly, there will be thousands and thousands of Art Deco objects Water pitchers, cigarette lighters, automobiles, hood ornaments, uh, sculpture, grill work. And then you can just instantly, you can say uh, Italian Baroque. And in a single moment, you know, you're at the church at Santa Maggiore and seeing all this gold work and all this stuff. And then you can say, surprise me. So 
you know, what kind of a dialogue is this? And what kind of an entity is this? Is this part of the spiritual quest? Is this off in its own uh, domain? The language of ayahuasca, a way in which ayahuasca and psilocybin slice it differently, is uh, psilocybin actually speaks. There's an informing voice. It tells you. The language of ayahuasca is visual. It shows you. You become like the eye of a, of a cinemascopic camera. And after a good ayahuasca trip, you just feel like your eyes are sticking out of your head. I mean, it's like going to Madison Avenue to buy art or something. You've looked at so many prints, and you've just looked and looked, and you've been looking and looking, because that's how it does it. And you know what I said on Friday about the more perfect logos, this thing which is visually beheld. See, what we're doing is we're mucking about in the domain of profound mystery. And I really can't help you. I don't have answers. I, my one answer is my little time wave, which I'm willing to share with you. But uh, ideas in this domain are a dime a dozen. I mean, my dream was always to catch an idea, because I saw that that's what the psychedelic thing was. And some of the ideas are tiny ideas, amusing and preposterous, but utterly worthless. And then the large ideas leave you just little, 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 little like that, because they go by and tear your nets to shreds, and your main concern at that point is to row for shore. But every once in a while there comes one of manageable size that you can actually wrestle into your little boat and uh, take back to astound everyone in the village with. And the time wave, I have the feeling that in the, in the DMT ecstasis, that the time wave gets about a minute, uh, about three seconds because they say, Look at this. You say, oh, wow, that's amazing. You say, look at this. You say, my God, I've never seen anything. Say, but look at this. And each one of these are, you. your amazement is genuine and your reaction is correct. You are being shown the most amazing things you've ever seen. It's simply that you cannot retain what they are. So the goal is, first of all, to be there, to know about it, to draw strength, from the, the evidence for magic, but then the higher calling is to bring, is to, is to be a, a hunter, to find something, to bring it back. I mean, if that's a little too meaty a metaphor for you, well then think of yourself as a noetic archaeologist. You, we want to bring back an object, a flower from hyperspace, a machine from another world, and Apparently, the easiest things to bring back are ideas. And so we have to pay a lot of attention because ideas can cross the barrier. Very little else can. But if we pay sufficient attention, I think all, much of these ideas can be brought across and we can bring all... Nothing is unfair. I mean, computer graphics, voice-operated tape recorders... Uh, anything that works. I mean, the, this is, we've hit the main vein of ideas out there in hyperspace, and the goal is just to fill our knapsacks as full as we can and then get back to base with this stuff. <laughs>
I guess really, I mean, I'm about to wind it down now. The real point of this month, and it, I have to keep clearing it back and reminding myself and you, is that we've discovered something and that we don't know what it is and that we're like the monkeys in 2001 dancing around the monolith. But this is important. I mean, that's almost all we can say at this point. But it's very, very important. The world will never be the same once the implications of this are worked out. And since I believe a lot of its impact is going to be in psychotherapy, and I see you guys as probably m many of you will be psychotherapists or therapists or doctors, you're going to have an impact and be involved in this. But basically, we're just clearing a space for a discovery and it's a hard discovery to announce because we don't know what we've discovered. We just know we've really discovered something. Fire must have hit with this kind of impact. And look how long it took to work out what you could do with it. Well, that's it for today. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Ideas can cross the barrier. Did you catch that? Ideas can cross the barrier. And uh, while I'm only speaking for myself here, I think that little mantra might be something worth saying to oneself as the barrier is being crossed. I know that I'm not the only one here in the salon who has had what uh, Sasha calls a plus five experience where almost unimaginable amounts of uh, really wondrous information unfold. But when you come back down, then you wind up telling your friends that, well, you just had the greatest experience of your life, but you just can't remember anything about it. <laughs> if you've been there, you know what I mean. Uh, but, but what if you uh, went in there hunting only for ideas so that when you returned, you could say, I can't tell you how I got this idea, but here's the idea that I've returned with. And uh, maybe that's a good way to approach these uh, inexplicable experiences. After all, we know for a fact that at least one of the ideas that has been brought back from a psychedelic experience was the first understanding of the DNA molecule. Uh, that's not bad for starters. Uh, now it's your turn. <laughs> and, and I'm not just talking about ideas and science here. Remember what uh, Terence also said just now, and I quote, it is curious that what these psychedelics do on a scale of a community is they release new ideas and that this is how the culture moves forward. The culture is a phenomena dependent on the generation of ideas, plans, notions, connections. So this is precisely what these compounds are doing. After just now listening with you to Terence's rap about how women are programmed to talk more than men, well, I can't help myself from uh, telling this little story. Uh, although some men aren't willing to admit this, uh, but for most of us, the two words that strike the most terror in our hearts when they come from a woman are, let's talk. <laughs> I need not say any more about that particular fact. But I was completely taken aback about uh, six years ago when I was playing with one of my granddaughters. She was about uh, two and a half years old at the time, and the two of us were having a tea party. We had just pretended that uh, we'd finished eating, and uh, then she pretended to pour each of us a cup of tea. But next, she pushed her little chair back a bit, looked me in the eye, and then said, Let's talk. 
<laughs> I still laugh when I think about it, so uh, if you are one of our younger male members in the salon, uh, it might be good for you to keep that in mind, because uh, even if you're gay, there's going to come a time when some woman says that to you. But now, instead of having your stomach begin to turn in knots, you can simply smile to yourself and be sure that you only smile inside. But uh, you can relax now because you know that this is just one of the interesting little ways in which us men and women, well, we're just wired a little differently. But uh, hey, isn't that what makes it all so much fun? And uh, I do hope that I haven't offended any of our women saloners here because uh, I surely don't mean to. Now, next week, I hopefully will be able to bring you some more news about this year's Palenque Norte lectures at the uh, Burning Man Festival, and there's quite a lot to talk about. But since we've uh, again gone a little long, I'm only going to uh, cover one more topic, and uh, that is for me to give my opinion about Terence's time wave idea now that 2012 has come and gone. First of all, I'm going to read part of a recent comment that was uh, posted on our program notes, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And the author is someone who goes by the handle Hidden Place, and uh, here is part of the comment. Hey, Lorenzo, I would love to hear your thoughts about the time wave sometime soon. I think about it a lot, and I think most people will agree that where Terrence went wrong is in predicting an end date. It's an incredibly tempting thing to do and makes the whole story much more exciting, but I think it represents a misunderstanding of the basic idea. I think there is something to the idea of interconnected fractal time, but the problem is that a true fractal never actually reaches a singularity. If you zoom into a spiral in the classic Mandelbrot set, something I've spent a lot of time doing, the arms of the spiral never actually converge. So my interpretation is, if there is a transcendental object at the end of time, we'll never reach it in this reality because fractals are endlessly self-repeating with infinite variations and don't actually have an endpoint. So, uh, what do I think about all of that? Well, first of all, I completely agree that the major flaw in his work was to predict an end date, and most likely everyone else can agree with that too. As for the uh, fractal nature of time, if that's actually the case, then uh, what you say follows quite logically. I must admit, however, that uh, I've always had difficulty in accepting the idea of a transcendental object at the end of time. That reminds me of uh, some of the hocus-pocus that I was taught in Catholic school. You know, if it's uh, transcendental, then uh, what does it mean by it being an object, for example? And since we know so little about time, how can we even say that it has an end? Uh, do light and gravity have endpoints? Uh, <laughs> but these are just rabbit trails, in my opinion. And while I truly respect the discussion about the relationship between the I Ching and time, and DNA as well, I simply can't comment on it at all because, uh, well, I only have the vaguest notions about uh, the I Ching. But I most definitely think that a further exploration of Terence's concept of time being a waveform of some sort, whether it's shaped by the I Ching or some other algorithm, isn't, uh, to me uh, at least, as important as actually understanding what time really is. Here's how I've been trying to get my head around these things lately. Over the uh, past few months, I've read quite a few historical novels. And as an aside here, the reason I like to get my history from novels 
is uh, that by adding a human story to the line to kind of hang the historical events on, well, it just makes it more real to me and easier to read. And I realize that uh, many historians hold historical novels in great contempt. But, uh, hey, since history is always written by the winners, well, some of those acceptable histories (laughs) maybe should also be held in contempt because uh, a lot of what we've been fed in our public school history books is simply a pack of lies. Just try reading the uh, wonderful book by historian Howard Zinn, his brilliant book, A People's History of the United States. And once you've read that book, I think you're going to understand better what I'm talking about. But getting back to understanding time, I've now read all of Edward Rutherford's historical novels, and I highly recommend them. What he's done that I like so much is that he tells this really sweeping story of history, but uh, mainly all from a single place in each of his books, a different place, of course. And in some books, he he begins over 2,000 years in the past, and uh, from there he weaves the story of history of the passing ages up to the present. But we get to see how the people in each age, in a particular location, understood what was going on, and at the same time, I think, to uh, better understand what uh, ships we are who pass in the night, as the uh, saying goes, Uh, because sometimes a chapter is going to end after bringing uh, some event that is central to a particular fictional character to a close, and then the next chapter begins in the same town, but maybe several centuries later. And we see how the descendants of various earlier characters are completely ignorant of the trials and tribulations of those who have paved the way for them. Or, in some cases, uh, who it was in their ancestry that lost the family fortune. Now, I know that I'm not doing a very good job of saying how this has brought me to focus on the waveform of time that Terence came up with. But somehow, whenever uh, one of those aha moments in a novel hits me, I stop and think how, in in either a cyclical way or a fractal way, our minds are embedded in something really strange, and uh, for now we call it time. But deep down, I suspect that we all know that time isn't what it seems to be. Well, that's enough heavy lifting for today. Time being what it is, I think that it's now time for me to sign off. But, uh... I guess in the interest of honesty, I should tell you that uh, there actually is one other thing that I sometimes do when it's really hot. And these past few days, I've been really mindlessly re-watching a few episodes from one of my favorite television programs. Although it's uh, one that I've only seen on Netflix and never on TV. I'm not going to tell you uh, what the name of the program is, but as soon as I sign off, I'm going to play a few seconds of the theme song from it. And I'm sure that quite a few of our fellow Slaunters will have a big smile on their faces when they hear it. So, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.